0: And welcome to the first ever episode of Decepticast, the newest Transformers podcast. This podcast is dedicated to everything robots in disguise, past, present, and future. Each week I'll take an in-depth look at the toys, the comics, the TV shows, and the movies. On today's show, we're going to take a look at the recently finished Season 1 of Transformers Animated, review a couple of past BotCon exclusives, and take a look at IDW's Spotlight Mirage. So, enough talk, let's get on with the show. Well, Transformers Animated Season 1 has come and gone. I believe the show has been a huge success, truly a great show, and I thought it would be a good topic for my first episode to go back and take a look at the first season as a whole. What was great, what was not, the best episode, the worst, how it began, and how it ended. So, let's get to it. First, what Animated did right. It's brought back something that has been sorely missing from Transformers shows for the past few years. Character. I'm not a huge hater of the anime series, but it's a huge relief to see these characters grow as the series progresses. Particularly my favorite character, Bulkhead. It's great to see him come to terms with his clumsiness and discover the more artistic aspects of his personality. It offered a great contrast. And the fact that continuity is actually paid attention to is so nice. I was worried at first, when a lot of things were left unresolved, such as Starscream's fate, the Dinobots, among other things, but everything was addressed in due time. Season 1 on a whole had a really nice arc of stories, with the exception of a few episodes. More on that in a little bit. The action in the series was exciting and well thought out, but what I liked about it most was it was unique, more than just firefights and fistfights. The humor, while sometimes a little silly, was for the most part genuinely funny. The interaction between Starscream and Megatron, for example, always made me smile because it was dead on for the characters. Which brings me to my next point, the voice acting. As a fan of voice acting, I love that such greats as Cory Burton and Jeff Bennett lend their pipes to the Transformers mythos. Cory Burton, known for G1 Shockwave and Spike among many other things, is quickly becoming one of my favorite Megatrons right up there with Beast Wars Megs. His cold menace and always calculating mind make him a great villain, and, in contrast, to Tom Kenny's wonderfully bombastic Starscream. David Kaye does a great job as a younger Optimus, although I must admit I like his Grimlock and Lugnut better, as they just seem to be more interesting characters. And, what Transformer fan would I be if I didn't mention all the wonderful references to past Transformers series? It really shows a love of the material and a respect for the fans to throw in things whenever they can. Personal favorites of mine are, of course, Susan Blue returning to Voice RC and Kremzik making an appearance of all things. But from large illusions in the forefront like the Headmaster, to subtle ones in the background like Meltdown's minions being pretender monsters, it's clear that this show is crafted with respect for the long history it continues. So, needless to say, I love Animated, and it's becoming one of my favorite Transformers shows. But that doesn't mean it's perfect. I can understand the reasoning behind it, but Animated does give a little too much time to its human cast. I actually like Sari much more than I like any of the children from the Unicron trilogy, but she does throw her weight around a little more than she should. The human supervillains I don't mind when they are played as jokes, such as the angry archer, but when they are played as serious threats, then they can get a little tiresome. Meltdown and Nanosec are the biggest offenders in this case. The pacing of the shows could use a little fine-tuning also, as some of the episodes went at a good pace, only to have to rush at the end to wrap everything in. Animated began with a bang, the first three episodes being strung together to form a TV movie. I really enjoyed this movie because it gave a great introduction to all the main characters while not skimping on the action. We even got a good look at the Decepticons, with a great dose of Megatron to make up for his being prone for most of the series. The bug thing that the Autobots fought was a little weird, but on average I would prefer the Autobots fighting technology gone awry as opposed to some guy in a weird speed suit. Nanosec, I'm looking at you. The movie set the tone of the series very well, as we could see the robots in disguise theme discarded fairly quickly, and the superhero theme being cemented, which I don't have a problem with. It works for the tone of the show, and offers something different from the live-action movie and the current comic series. The movie started off the show strong, and certainly left me wanting more. As for the best episode, that's a hard one. I love anything with these new Dinobots, the Soundwave and Black Arachne episodes were great, but I'm going to have to go with the majority of fans on this one and say that the best episode by far was Thrill of the Hunt. Not only did we get the return of R.C., we got a great in-depth look into Ratchet's character and his tortured past. Corey Burton's performances as both the old and young Ratchet are distinct and different and just fantastic. You really got the sense of this Autobot's pain. We also got a good look at the war-torn battlefield of Cybertron, which was cool and haunting, and it was in contrast to the bright tone of the rest of the series. This was actually a pretty dark episode. And we get the awesome character of Lockdown, a unique vocal choice, he makes a fantastic villain. He's been compared to other bounty hunters like Boba Fett, but I find him even creepier, since he cannibalizes his victims. Ratchet's EMP Blaster is a cool story device, although it is a little unclear what happens to it. Ratchet doesn't decide to keep it for whatever reason, so does Lockdown still have it, or was it destroyed? Either way, this episode has a great story, and great character development, and of course it focused purely on the robots. As I said before, I don't hate Sorry or the rest of the human cast, but it is nice when the Autobots take the stage all to themselves. The worst episode, obviously, in my opinion, is Nanosec. Sure, the human supervillain ties into Megatron, but not nearly enough. The voice actor was a good, out-of-left-field choice, but the character wasn't threatening or cool enough to save himself. And if that wasn't bad enough, this episode centered around my least favorite Autobot, Bumblebee. Even Prowl said one of his weapons is his obnoxious attitude, and he's in rare form here, constantly whining about turbo boosters. If I were Ratchet or Prime, I wouldn't want to give them to him either. So add that to the cruddy villain and the fact that nothing in this episode really affected anything, you have the worst one of the season. Bumblebee didn't learn any sort of lesson from this romp, and even Nature Calls had the discovery of Megatron's body. The end of the season started off fantastic. Part 1 of Megatron Rising was filled with character development, such as Prime starting to flip out, revelations, such as Prowl finally dropping the bomb about the Dinobots, great humor, courtesy of Starscream, and lots of cool action, including Ratchet getting his arm ripped off. I was glad to see all ten characters get some spotlight time. Unfortunately, Part 2 just couldn't deliver on all that Part 1 promised. Black Arachnia's story was dropped without much thought and didn't really go anywhere. The Autobots were pretty cool with some Dak repairing their worst enemy, that season-long arc kind of fizzled. Same with all the tension that built up between the Autobots in Part 1. Now, granted, they didn't have a lot of time to wrap all these issues up, but I couldn't help but feel that this should have been a three-parter instead of a two-parter. The second episode was basically just one big action sequence. All in all, the second half felt more like a middle-of-the-season arc as opposed to the end of the season, although Part 2 did raise some cool issues. With the AllSpark destroyed, Prime's going to have to do some explaining once Magnus and the others show up next season. Still, despite the somewhat rushed ending to the season, I have become a huge animated fan, and am eager to see what happens next. I can't wait to see Soundwave's return, and what other plans they have for the Dinobots. I also look forward to seeing more of Bulkhead and Prowl, my two favorite Autobots. On a whole, I'd give Animated Season 1 an A-, filled with great stories and interesting characters, although some of the more experimental ideas don't work perfectly in practice. Give me more bots, less human supervillains, and this will go down with Beast Wars as one of the best Transformer shows ever. You got the touch! You got the power! And now, let's go to our first weekly segment of the show, something I like to call Robot Review. As the name suggests, this segment is all about reviewing Transformers figures, going in-depth each week about particular Autobots and Decepticons from the collection of yours truly. For this Robot Review, with BotCon being right around the corner, I thought it would be fun to go back and take a look at last year's exclusives. The year 2007 saw the release of a certain movie you may have heard of, and BotCon was not to be outdone and released a set that caused quite a stir among the fans. Loved by those who have it, wanted by those who don't, Games of Deception was a set that went down in BotCon history. But how do the five figures stand up on their own? Well, as someone who both enjoys the set, yet also prefers other sets, such as 2008 and 2006, I'm here to offer my opinion. Let me start off by saying I love the packaging alone. While the box art may be a little bland, with most of the figures being in jet fo- jet mode, it's very sturdy, and it's got a nice gloss to it, and I love the packing foam. I know that's a silly thing to go on and on about, but it's so sturdy and really makes your figures feel special. It just holds them so tightly, so yes, I love the foam, and I'm eager to get more of it this year. But enough about foam, I'm probably the only one who really cares about that. Let's get on to the figures. The figures that make up this set are all pretty cool in their own right, but it's still a pretty odd collection. I mean, obviously the three Seekers were chosen to complete the classic set, but the addition of Bug Bite and Dreadwind came really out of left field. I know it makes sense in the fiction, but it's weird to see the Coneheads with Thundercracker and all of them hanging out with a later toy from G1, Dreadwind. In fact, the biggest problem I have with this set is not at all the figures themselves, but the selection of characters. Not being an enormous G1 fan, or, more accurately, not holding it above other series, it's kind of boring that the exclusive figures are everyday characters that aren't really special at all. For example, something like an evil Optimus or a brand new character like Sentinel Maximus are cooler to me than a bland character like Thundercracker. Don't get me wrong, I like the figure a lot, but I think Bug Bite is a better example of an exclusive figure. Of course, there is the argument that getting a toy that will never see retail release is better than a random figure. That is certainly true, I can understand that thinking. I just prefer something that stands on its own, as opposed to an extension of a retail line like Classics. That's the biggest negative of this set, in my opinion, and it's not even a real negative. Certainly, I know other people don't agree. So, in other words, even though the figures are sort of mismatched Classics releases, I'm not going to complain about getting a set of really cool toys. Let's start with Dreadwind, who I feel is the weakest of the set, while he's far from a bad figure, however. I never really liked Classic's Jetfire, as his posability was very stiff and his colors were very bland. The simple fact that he was Jetfire didn't score a lot of points for me. So in my book, Dreadwind had marks against him from the start. Vehicle mode is a supersonic jet, and his transformation is very simple. The removable armor, which was kinda cool on Jetfire, is very out of place on Dreadwind, as he never had that sort of bulk before. What Dreadwind does right, though, is he has a much more interesting paint scheme than Jetfire. He's covered in a few different colors, all light tones, but very appropriate for the character. Very accurate. In robot mode, like I said, it's very hard to pose Dreadwind, as his joints are very stiff. They are the kind that click, so it limits movement in poses. It's also hard for him to stand on his feet. The armor, especially the helmet, scream Jetfire, so I feel it's better to display him without it. That way, you get to see the great head sculpt. That's the best part about this figure. What I like most about it is it looks very much like Andrew Wildman's interpretation of the character. Very organic. Oh, and something I do while displaying him, in order to scream less jet fire, I keep his wings down in robot mode, as opposed to up like the instructions in comic have him. I feel it looks more like the original toy. So a cool homage to an underused character and a nice new head sculpt, those are points in Dreadwind's favor, but stiff joints and a poor fit of character to mold make him the weakest of the set. Sorry Dreadwind. I love you anyway. Let's handle the Seekers next. Since they all utilize essentially the same transformation and posability, I'll discuss that all together. Each have their own cool jet mode, based on the Starscream or ramjet molds. Their transformations are interesting because they are very similar to how the original toys transformed and how they changed on the original cartoon. Both molds are posable too, even though they lack ball joints in the shoulders. Thundercracker and Thrust have slightly less movement than Dirge, because the wings of the Starscream mold get in the way of arm movement. Neither of them are able to point their guns straight forward, which would kind of be a problem when facing the Autobots. Still, great detail and good posability for all six of the Jets. But, we're here to handle the exclusives. Dirge is my favorite of the three, personally. He's a straight repaint of Ramjet. His wings were different in G1 from Ramjet, but they were similar enough that no remolding was needed. Durge has always been my favorite of the Coneheads, I certainly like his character the best. The dark blue that is his main color is cooler to me than the lighter blue of Thundercracker. The tan on his wings is lighter than it was on the G1 toy, but I feel it makes the toy pop more, and the colors work together better. It should also be mentioned that Durge is the only one in the set that can point his guns forward. So, great colors, cool character, and the fact that he can actually aim make him the favorite of mine for the set. Let's talk about Thrust next. The biggest change of the set, this guy got completely new wings for his botcon debut. They're really snazzy, adding a lot more detail to an already good mold. He's colored a really nice brick red too, a maroon. Much nicer than a standard red. Since the wings are different than and ramjets, they go up on his back. It looks a little different, as this was not how his G1 toy was, but it's not a huge deal and he fits in well with the other Seekers in classics. The wings are very slightly wider due to the vertical takeoff and landing fans, but I find that's a good thing because it gives the figure more mass. All in all, it's a really extensive remold, and it's great to see fun publications went the extra mile to make sure the figure is right and accurate. Personally, I like Dirge the best, but Thrust's a really close second. Basically, it just comes down to Dirge's slightly better posability and cooler personality. And, of course, the last seeker, Thundercracker. He looks like he stepped right out of the 80s in a perfect update of the original toy. He's a lot lighter blue than the original, but other than that, all the details and paint apps are great matches. It's really nice and all, but there's not much to say about Cracker other than the fact that he's a more poseable, more detailed, more cartoon-accurate version of the original toy. Don't get me wrong, I love my Cracker figure a lot, and I'm glad I have him to complete the set, but he just doesn't scream exclusive to me. I like him better than Dreadwind simply because he's a better toy in general and a better update, but I still prefer other figures from this year. Which brings us to the last toy of the box set, the only not-G1 reference, Bug Bite. Originally a GoBot, Bug Bite was later released in Japan as a white repaint of Bumblebee. Fun publications saw this opportunity to round out their set with a nice exclusive character and repainted classics Bumblebee. His car mode is a good update of the original, similar in design, but avoiding the issues that come with making him an actual Volkswagen. The white would be a little bland, so they added this really neat tribal design to the car. It's very striking. Supposedly it's supposed to resemble resemble a Decepticon symbol, but I've had the toy for almost a year and I can't see it. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Bug Bite's color scheme is a lot more dynamic than Bumblebee's, and not just the figure himself. His little jet ski got a major upgrade too between the black base as opposed to the light gray base and the purple spray apps as opposed to the straight paint this little add-on got a lot cooler looking. In robot mode there's a lot more black coloring to him so you get a great contrast between all the white. Looks a lot better than the vehicle mode plus we still get the purple coloring and one of my favorite little details on Bugbite is his evil red eyes. It's just a little bit of color that stands out and really makes a statement about his character which is good, since he's the only new one in the set. Well, he's not really new, but you know what I mean. He's got a little bit of kibble on him, most noticeably the car doors on his arms. Those don't interfere with posing, however. The seats of the car are a little kibble on his legs, which for me, do interfere with the movement. Still, you get a new U.S. character with a kick-butt paint scheme that is also a homage. It all adds up to a great exclusive and rounds off an awesome set. Yes, the Games of Deception set is five amazing figures that may seem a little mismatched and odd, but all in all, it makes a great box set and a worthy addition to any collection. But let's not stop there. Let's add one more on. Let's talk about the free giveaway figure, the Invisible Mirage. G1 Mirage was never my favorite character, and he wasn't my favorite classics figure either, but he was also my free Primus package figure, so I can't complain too much. After all, this was the first time Fun Publications gave us the deluxe as the free figure, as opposed to a basic. That was greatly appreciated. His vehicle mode is standard Mirage F1 racer, although it doesn't really look invisible. Since the vehicle mode is very condensed, he kinda just looks like a dark blue car. The details Mirage had as a race car, such as Widwiki spark plugs, are all gone, because, well, he's invisible, you know. The invisible motif actually makes the vehicle very bland, but that's not where the money is, is it? Things get a lot better in robot mode. Mirage is really skinny, which I feel looks odd for an Autobot, but he makes up for it by being incredibly poseable. With waist and actual feet articulation, not to mention ball joints for his legs and shoulders, Mirage can fit a variety of poses, which does make up for his lack of body mass. The plastic is also spread out more in robot mode, so we get a better sense of him being clear Although, it was odd that they chose to use dark blue as opposed to truly clear plastic, like they did for that team of minicons near the end of Cybertron. I must say, though, hold Mirage up to the light and you do get a cool effect, even though he doesn't really read invisible. So, he's a cool toy with great posability, even though he looks kinda odd. Final thoughts on this figure, as much as I don't care for Mirage and would have preferred a new character as opposed to a different version of a character I already had, There is something exclusive about having a clear figure. I remember there was a convention-exclusive Beaker figure, so I applaud fun publications for trying something different, even though I don't care for Mirage's wishy-washy snobbery. He's not my favorite figure from 2007 BotCon, but he was a nice surprise and a good addition to any collection. And there you have it, the start of our look back at the 2007 BotCon exclusives. And that will wrap it up for this week's Robot Review. And now, on to a segment I like to call The Library, where I look into the world of Transformers comic books. This week, I'm going to review IDW's Spotlight Mirage. I'm a huge fan of the Spotlight series, and I believe that they have been some of the best work in Transformers comics. However, I must confess, Mirage is definitely my least favorite of all the Spotlights. Like I said in Robot Review, I never really liked the character in G1, but I went into the book with an open mind. That being said, I do feel the book was marketed incorrectly. It was advertised as our Mirage, getting transported to another universe where he gets to try out being a Decepticon. Here, we're started off with a Decepticon Mirage that is damaged and needs to be repaired, yet when we see him next he seems to be a free agent considering he listens to only one will, his own. Did Megatron hire him for that battle? Was that only the Autobot Mirage? The whole two-mirage method of telling the story was very confusing and didn't offer a good chance to get into the character's head because the reader was too busy trying to figure out what the heck was going on. And even so, we still didn't get a very good look at Mirage, because the attention of the book was divided between the two Mirages. Unless they were implying that there was only one. I don't know. Anyway, back to the story. Mirage can order Megatron around and is seemingly winning the war for the Decepticons, as there are only four Autobots left and one is dying. There's also something about a mirror, and the Autobots are trying to get energy from it, only it's not a mirror. I don't know, it was a whole lot of sci-fi speak. It was also a very odd choice of Hound to be the one to do it. Surely there was no shortage of scientifically inclined Autobots. Anyway, Mirage tricks Prime and brings the Decepticons in. Megatron then orders them to kill all the Autobots, which Mirage has some doubts about. Prime tries to reach him, but he ends up killing Hound anyway. Prime hits him into the whatever it is, and then he's an Autobot. Was that thing a portal? Were they trying to get energy from a portal? Like I said before, it's all very confusing, but the thing that irks me the most about this book is it's not in continuity at all. Okay, so most of it takes place in an alternate universe, but at the end of the comic, Mirage is clearly on Earth with an Earth vehicle mode. The bots are all IDW designed, yet it obviously feels like the writer was going off the G1 cartoon rather than paying attention to the current continuity. Overall, a messy storytelling device, the problem that it's not in continuity, and the fact that we don't even get a good look at the character make this the bottom rung of the spotlight ladder. It's not as good as RC, Blaster, or Cup, and it certainly doesn't touch Galvatron or Shockwave. I am looking forward to the next series of spotlights, though. I think it'll be a great way to continue the story of IDW's continuity. And that's it for our visit to the library this week. And that does it for the first ever episode of Decepticast. I want to personally thank you for tuning in. I had so much fun putting this podcast together, and I really hope all of my fellow Transformer fans enjoyed it. This is my first podcast, so if you have any advice, any constructive criticism, or anything that you'd like to see, please feel free to email the show at Decepticast at gmail.com. That's D-E-C-E-P-T-I-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Also, feel free to email the show with suggestions on things you want to see covered or ideas for segments. I would love to make Decepticast interactive, so just throw me an email and I'll make a listener feedback portion and read all of your emails on the air. Oh, and don't forget to stop by the Decepticast blog at Decepticast.blogspot.com. If you need even more to fill your Transformers fix, don't forget www.cybertron.com, that's S-E-I-B-E-R-T-R-O-N.com, one of the finest Transformers sites on the web. BotCon is just a few short days away. For more information, head down to www.botcon.com. I'll be there in Ohio to celebrate BotCon 2008, and I'll be bringing you back a full report and coverage, but if any of my listeners are going to BotCon as well, If you see me there, don't be afraid to stop and say hi. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to bringing you another Decepticast next week. Until then, this is your host, Scott, signing off. Goodbye.